Welcome to episode 58 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, and each week I publish a new episode with a new climate champion as my guest. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Julie McLaughlin, VP of Commercial Origination at Cogentrix. She's also a writer, author, and novelist. Recently, for Scientific American, she wrote The Increasing Irrelevance of Climate Change Denial, Even if you don't accept the science, you'll need to deal with the consequences. Julie found and engaged in energy due to a passion for the environment and being of service more than 15 years ago. Since then, she's worked across 16 countries and seven technologies. She loves formulating investment strategies, executing deals, and watching projects come to life. The dynamism of the industry and its rapid evolution keeps her engaged and motivated daily. And on another note, my discussion with Julie was the last face-to-face interview I was able to have back in February prior to the obvious need to shelter in place. In the coming weeks, I'll be rebooting the Climate Champions podcast, but they'll be recorded remotely. In this time of uncertainty, please be careful. I'm sure you all know these precautions, but they bear repeating. Maintain physical distancing keep at least six feet of distance from others, wear protective masks when in public, and avoid crowds as much as possible. Wash your hands frequently and try not to touch your face. I keep my hands in my pockets as a reminder. And if you have a fever, cough, or difficulty breathing, seek medical care early. It's a good time to learn and leverage technology solutions to stay as connected as you can to the people you care about. We're all in this together. While being careful and alert, Please be supportive and kind. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm interviewing Julie McLaughlin. She's the VP of Commercial Origination at Cogentrix. She's also a writer, a novelist, and an author. Julie, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thank you for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure to be here. With regards to climate change... Can you talk about the motivating moment? What made you feel like you had to do something? Sure. I I was actually thinking about this question in anticipation of, of our conversation, having listened to many of your great podcasts. And, you know, it's hard to pinpoint a specific moment in time in which climate change, and back then I would say it was still referred to as global warming, came into consciousness. But certainly when I was in doing my master's in environmental science and policy at Columbia, I did a class in climatology. And we talked a lot about climate change and obviously the science behind it, as well as the risks. And I think that's when I really started to become passionate about it. So probably was peripherally aware of it before that class, but that class really kind of propelled me to become passionate about it. And out of that master's program, 
I took a job working with a startup company called EcoSecurities that was doing uh, carbon credits globally for the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol. So basically, we were developing projects that created emissions reductions, and then we would certify those emissions reductions through the UN's uh, UNFCCC and be able to use those reductions for a portion of European and Japanese compliance under the Kyoto Protocol. I'm going to switch it a little bit to the novel that you're writing. Was there a moment where you decided, hey, I'm going to write a novel that integrates climate change? Yeah. So the first time I had the idea for the novel was actually while I was working in that carbon credit company, EcoSecurities. Because, I mean, more than anything, I had a very difficult time explaining to friends and family what I was actually doing. At that point in time, the U.S. had not passed any carbon legislation. And so as I went through these personal conversations, I realized how difficult it was to explain climate change. And as such, you know, I started to think maybe one of the reasons why there is a lot of denial around climate change is because of the complexity of the science which I knew in intimate detail from from the master's program. And I kind of figured if studying it with some of the best experts in the world on climate change still gave me a headache, it had to be much more inaccessible for normal people. I think maybe I had the idea probably first in 2007, 2008. And that was really before there were many mainstream articles about climate change. I think I think things have changed a lot, especially in the last year, 18 months, where you have a lot more journalists writing really accessible material about climate change. But, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, and even five years ago, there was very little available for mainstream audiences around climate change. So my idea was really to write a story that was founded in science, but not overburdened by science so that people could relate to the concepts. Can you talk about why doing something about climate change is personally important to you? Certainly. So doing something about climate change is personally important to me because I care a lot about uh, human and non-human beings. And I think that there has been a lot of suffering inflicted by climate change already and that the suffering is, is likely to get worse as the conditions get worse there's a lot of talk about the sixth extinction. I think that we are we are definitely on that path. And it's interesting from an environmental perspective, in, in terms of the earth, I'm personally not worried about the earth. The earth will regenerate and has multiple times over its history. I think the likely victims, as I said already, are both the human and non-human beings that will become extinct or will suffer uh, dramatically in the process. When you meet people that don't believe the science behind climate change or that anything is wrong or that it's an urgent problem, how do you explain to them that it is? Generally, when I meet someone who, who doesn't believe in the science or doesn't believe in the urgency of climate change, I try to avoid getting into a direct argument or or debate with them because I have not found those experiences to be incredibly uh, helpful. And so I think, you know, try to kind of reframe the conversation such that even if a lot of the arguments are that it's a natural cycle, and I think we have a lot of scientific evidence to the contrary, but I think the takeaway is that 
irrespective of how we got here, the reality is that greenhouse gases are prohibiting the natural balance of solar radiation from escaping the planet after it comes in. And that knowing that that is a problem, wouldn't you want to fix it irrespective of the cause? Because it does have pretty strong implications to, you know, to climate and to the survival of a number of species. Can you talk about the specific activities you are involved with to help mitigate climate change? Sure. Over my career, I have done a lot of work in renewable energy, also in carbon mitigation projects, as I mentioned, working for uh, EcoSecurities, the carbon credit startup. And then later I joined E.ON, the German utility, where we were looking at projects that had both a carbon mitigation as well as an energy component and investing in those projects as well as procuring the the carbon credit attributes. So I think that has been a passion of mine over the years. I continue to work in renewable energy and really enjoy that space. But I think even more important than, let's say, replacing a percentage of fossil fuels with renewable resources is hopefully the idea of writing a novel and creating a story that people can relate to to make climate change more mainstream and more accessible to to more people. I think renewable energy is is a little bit niche and as we all know people don't really care that much about how they get the kilowatts that turn on their their lights and their electronics at home. So I think finding a way that people can engage more directly in something that is more concrete like stories is hopefully going to have a bigger impact. You talked a little bit about your prior background, pre-novel. Can you talk about other things you've done in your journey to get where you are today? Uh, related to climate change? Whatever you want, yeah. <laughs> so really, maybe that uh, requires me kind of taking you through how I got to climate change and renewable energy. And that was really for a passion for the environment. I was very passionate about the environment from an early age. I did environmental studies in English in undergrad. And then straight out of uh, university, I went into the Peace Corps for two years in Nicaragua doing environmental education. So that was basically teaching kids in third through sixth grade environmental education, which is a very participatory education that allows them to get outside and to understand their world. And so it also engages them in a level that is very interesting from an educational perspective, as opposed to kind of rote memorization and, and regurgitation of facts, which oftentimes can be the case in, in some of the school environments. And then also as part of my work in the Peace Corps, I helped the professors at the sort of the teachers at the local schools acquire those skill sets and provide them with resources to be able to continue the environmental education. And while there, I did a couple of other projects in town, like writing a grant in order to get trash cans. There were no trash cans um, actually anywhere in our 5,000 person town when I first started my Peace Corps service. So things like that were very related to the environment. And I had initially thought that I wanted to go into international development in environmental areas. And after my two years in actually a total of 27 months in the Peace Corps, I realized that I did not have the personality to be in that 
let's say, multilateral aid environment. It's it's very difficult to navigate. There are very few measurable KPIs because you never really know when there is a change, when there is a positive change, how much you can attribute to your work, and if there's a negative change, how much, how responsible you are for it. Yeah, it's difficult if you don't know that you've actually made positive change to really keep going in a hard, difficult atmosphere. Yeah, and there's a lot of things that that you can't control in the environment of international development. And so when I came back to the U.S. after the end of my Peace Corps, I realized that wanted to find something that was somewhere in between a business opportunity and an environmental good or an environmental type of work. And that's when I stumbled into the environmental attribute markets, in particular carbon, but then there's also obviously renewable energy credits, which is another environmental attribute market, and the original NOx and SOx through the, you know, the US EPA acid rain program, which is basically the father of of environmental attribute trading and that whole concept. So when I found that, I thought, well, this is perfect because you can actually do projects you get for task-oriented people like myself. You get that satisfaction that you have actually achieved something because you can actually see the steel in the ground and at the same time, you know, doing good work. So I figured out that that was a better fit for my personality. I remember writing my first piece of software that got boxed and seeing it for sale in a store, and just seeing it for sale, my software that I wrote, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. And I mean, God bless the people that are able to just kind of give themselves to development without needing that steel in the ground or, or those boxes on the shelf for validation. But maybe I, I'm just not as good of a person, but I needed, I needed those milestones to keep me moving, keep me motivated. On one hand, it feels good when these podcasts are done. As I publish them, I see them out there. I say, wow, I did that. On the other hand, I don't really have a metric for whether it's changing people or whether it matters out there. But some people tell me they like the podcast and that they learn from it. So I think that's something. Absolutely. And I think there is especially writing the novel. I have listened to a number of podcasts, particularly about creative writing and and this, that, and the other. Uh, and I think there is something that is inherently valuable in creating art and creating something unique. And I have come to appreciate that as I've gotten older, uh, more than I did in my 20s. We've talked around the edges of this, but can you discuss some of the setbacks that you faced? Yeah, so I think the biggest setback the biggest heartbreak in my career was Copenhagen in 2012, when basically all the parties came out of the negotiation without a deal for for a continuation of Kyoto. And the carbon market was showing signals of decline prior to Copenhagen, but that was really like the nail in the coffin. <laughs> and it was it was really, really sad to kind of see a market that I felt did so much good in so many places. I mean, I worked on projects that, let's say, in Patagonia, in Chile, that were replacing diesel generation for an isolated small town grid with hydro or capturing methane gas off a landfill in China that was otherwise just being let into the atmosphere. And so by capturing that methane gas, one, you reduce the amount of waste runoff from that landfill. You also generate clean energy, you know, that is in a grid, especially at that time in China, it was 
pretty predominantly fossil fuel, and you're generating capital to show people that they can invest in environmentally friendly projects and still make money. And so I felt really passionate about those projects and just seeing Kyoto fade into a bit of an oblivion was a pretty big setback, I would say. For all of us, I think. I think that's right. Yes. And I think we're still struggling to get back to where we were pre-Copenhagen. A lot of the things that had already been established and agreed as part of Kyoto are still being discussed. Let's say last year was COP25, which stands for the Conference of the Parties, quite a bit longer and still arguing about should there be a mechanism like the clean development mechanism that enables dollars for these great localized projects. And otherwise, they a lot of them just don't get done. I mean, there's the cost implications of, let's say, installing a methane capture system or a biodigester at either, let's say, a landfill or a pig farm is prohibitive if you are not getting that additional carbon revenue. And so those projects then just don't happen. And I think there's a lot of benefit from those types of projects. So that was difficult for all of us. It amazes me how obviously urgent the issue is and how we still find ourselves muddled in talk instead of action. I think that's exactly right. And I think there are great things about a global forum that gives voice to a lot of different stakeholders. But I think we also need to be very focused on local action. At least in California, there are a lot of measures that go to that end. Uh, But there are plenty of places that today don't have any efforts to curb climate change that I think really could benefit. And the cynic in me worries that, that it will be too late before those measures get enacted on a local level. I've interviewed a town council person. Their town is going to 100% renewables. I've interviewed a mayor of a city. The city's going 100%. California wants to go 100%, as do many other states. But really, in the end, it's going to take a world effort. It's very helpful that individual cities, states, towns are trying to do something in this regard, but in the end, we need the world to come together on this. Absolutely. And I think the challenge is indeed the complexity of the issues. And even, let's say, 100% renewable is not feasible in the strictest physics sense today. So I think addressing those issues head on and finding a way to mitigate climate change without totally overturning the existing system, which I also think is probably not possible, uh, would be very productive and, and certainly something that many countries are moving towards. And as one of the largest emitters and also one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we, we could definitely be doing more. I take the shortcut of saying 100% renewable sometimes as if that's going to cure the problem and as if that's possible. But really, it's GHG reduction that we need to do, and we need a lot of it, and we need it very quickly. Absolutely. And I think that there are, I mean, there have been in the past grant programs for research around carbon capture and storage. All of those solutions are absolutely urgent. It's not enough just to reduce the generation. And as we all know, electricity is not the only source, as you just kind of alluded to, is not the only source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, There are plenty of other sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that 
we need to think of it as a holistic challenge to to be tackled. All of the arrows in all of the quivers. Exactly. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? Most proud of, I think, are some of the ones that I mentioned earlier in the the carbon credit reduction space. You know, the project that I did, the small hydro in Patagonia, where we were replacing a small diesel generation set because it was not connected to the, to the larger grid, so they didn't have any other way to generate power. And this was lot. I mean, this was in two thousand. I want to say two thousand and so it was long before batteries were even an option, right? The solar plus, it, it barely barely solar was being installed in, in South America at the time. The cost of storage then was too much yeah. to really consider, <laughs> yes. Right. That was not on my radar at that point in time. So I didn't even know what kind of storage, if that would have been like lead batteries, who knows. But that was not a possibility. So we were able to, to replace that diesel generation with hydro. And that was really, really fulfilling and there's something really tangible about those small localized projects that you can really see the impact. The others were related to landfill gas capture, although I have to say, if I never visit another pig farm in my life, it will be too soon. I've visited more <laughs> pig farms than, than you can imagine. Wow. Uh, and there was one one particular time where... Uh, we were visiting a pig farm in Peru and we were staying in Lima and we were traveling by plane in the morning to visit a pig farm to explore the possibility of installing an anaerobic digester to capture all of the, the methane gas from the oxidation lagoons. And we, you know, we got to the, we got to the pig farm. Obviously it smelled terrible. We finally left the pig farm, had our conversations with the potential counterparty, who owned the pig farm, had a meal, and then got back on the plane to go back to Lima at the end of the day. And as we were walking down the aisle, I noticed people putting their hands over their noses. And that's when I realized that although I no longer smelled the pig, the pig waste smell, others around me were picking it up on, uh, on my person. So that, that memory has, uh, has stuck with me. And, and like I said, I, I hope I never have to visit another pig farm. Pig on the plane. Can you talk about successes from a riding perspective? Sure. So I think from a public perspective, I did have a good success in getting an essay published in the Scientific American last summer around the public safety power shutoffs in Northern California in order to try and prevent wildfires. And I think that was that was kind of interesting. I The title of that article was uh, The Increasing Irrelevance of Climate Change Denial. And my thesis was that it doesn't really matter whether you believe climate change is real or or it's caused by humans, the fact of the matter is, is we are all going to suffer the consequences regardless. And, and that could be as inconvenient as having your power shut off for a few days and, and losing all the food in your refrigerator and, and possibly sweating an awful lot, depending on what the temperature happens to be in, in your home. Or in the worst case, it can be death, right? As we saw with Campfire, where where 85 people died in that wildfire, and an entire community lost their home and their legacy, and that's that's not something that you can ever get back. Like I said, it's 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 very inconvenient and wasteful to lose all the food in your in your refrigerator, but the vast majority of people can at some point replenish that, but you can't get back the loss of life or the loss of a community. Maybe afterwards, I'll tell you about a startup I just launched called Connect California, 
and it's actually targeted at people that are going through the power shutoff events. It allows them to have a microgrid in their home and take energy from their electric vehicles. Excellent. We're just launching it, so it's pretty exciting. Sounds very, very interesting. The other successes I've had in writing was was actually completing my novel. You know, I do have a full-time job, so being able to complete my novel meant getting up sometimes at, you know, 4.35 in the morning, writing for one or two hours, depending on when my conference calls started, foregoing a lot of weekends, taking vacation days to go to writer workshops, to work on the novel for four days, a lot of very, very tough criticism because I have not been writing literature for, you know, for the vast majority of my career. And so trying to get up that learning curve as to what is required in a good novel and a good story, a plot, character development, pacing, language has been a hard learning curve and have gone through a lot of iterations. I basically did five drafts of my novel before over three years before kind of considering it not not done, but done enough to send to agents. So. People underestimate how much work it is to complete a novel and also how hard it is to call it done. I know my wife, she would never call it done if there wasn't a deadline. That's Absolutely. finally what makes it done. That's exactly right. And you have to set those deadlines for yourself, which sometimes can be can be quite difficult, is setting those deadlines and working, working to the deadlines. And unlike many other things in my professional career, I mean, if you have writer's block, it's really hard <laughs> to just write something good. I think Dan Brown has a quote that he said, you know, he doesn't believe in writer's block, but he believes in shitty writing. And I think that that is, you know, definitely one strategy is is just to write without without any sort of attachment to the quality of the writing. But that doesn't necessarily get you further along the track to the novel that you want to you want to write. Because my wife is a writer, I go to a number of writing conferences, and I have heard the advice that when you have writer's block, that's a good time to edit what you've previously written or to write down just something, and then when you edit it, you can make it better. Sometimes that works. Yeah. Yeah, definitely sometimes it works. I don't write, so I can't say. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it works. But also, you know, going back and editing can be kind of a sink in and of itself, right? It can it can very easily suck you in. And if it's the wrong time for editing, let's say your first draft, where you really don't even know until the end exactly what your story is, it can distract you from, from the task at hand. Yeah, I admire anybody that writes and could get a novel done. I just think it's amazing. So however you do it, congratulations. Thank you. Can you talk about your vision for the future? Where do you see climate change taking us in the next 20, 30, 40 years? Let me try separating it out into, let's say, the the vision in my novel and what I would actually like to happen. So in the novel, is is that what you think is going to happen? I think there's, you know, it's definitely a strong possibility, strong possibility. In the novel, it's set in in, uh, 2049 at the moment, let's just say mid 21st century. Barely a day goes by without a catastrophic climate event. That could be a fire, a flood, a hurricane, landslide, what have you. And in the U.S., the government actually sees the opportunity to consolidate power uh, because there's a lot of refugees and 
and vulnerable uh, citizens. So they create the Department of Climate Control and start building government-run communities. And then they have task force that go out into the communities that have just suffered a a big climate catastrophe and convince them to move to those government-run communities. So I think the onslaught of climate catastrophes is already here. I think, you know, what happened in Australia with the bushfires, as they call them, over the holidays was one such example. The the level and the intensity of climate catastrophes and the frequency is increasing. And it's not hard to imagine as we keep increasing the amount of warming in the system that those catastrophes will be both more frequent and more intense over time. What I would like to be the vision for the future. Yes, let's end on a good note. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't think we obviously can't avoid climate change 100%, but that we are able to curb some of the worst impacts. And I think in the near term, one of those steps is to make climate change a less politicized conversation, right? I think it's something that really does concern everyone irrespective of your personal belief system. And it will impact people in different degrees, but will impact the vast majority of people to some extent. And so I think the most important first step is is a bit of a depolitization of the concept of climate change and a broader conversation. And most recently, I read a book by Timothy Morton called Being Ecological. And he has a very interesting theory in this. He's kind of a philosopher. Um, He's a professor at Rice University. And a theory that he kind of expounds in being ecological is that we are already ecological. Just by being human on planet Earth, we are already ecological, akin to I think, therefore I am. And that we don't have to try so hard to be ecological, that let's say going to a home, this is my interpretation, going to a Home Depot and smelling the plants in the nursery is just as ecological an action as deciding to ride your car or, uh, sorry, ride your bike (laughs) or, or walk instead of drive your car. And I think it's a really interesting perspective. And the other thesis that he has in this book is that a lot of climate denial is actually a response to being bombarded with too much information and also a level of guilt. And he does draw some parallels with the archetypal religions in society and that omnipresence of guilt. And I, I think there is, that seems to ring true to me that, that people oftentimes respond poorly to being told what they should and they shouldn't do, and that everybody has their own path. And and the reality is there's very few people that are beyond criticism, right? Kind of like, don't throw stones in glass houses. I mean, there's, there's very few Greta Thunbergs in the world that are willing to basically make their entire life around climate change mitigation. It's, it's quite difficult. And I struggle with a lot of those inconsequential dilemmas on a daily basis. Like if you think about, okay, if I'm going to get groceries and I know that the farmer's market is more ecological or more climate friendly than the supermarket, is it 
better for me to drive the 20 miles to the farmer's market and get as much of what I need there and then drive to the supermarket because obviously you can't buy everything that you need in your fridge at the farmer's market. Okay, this reminds me of The Good Place. I don't know if you've seen the television show, The Good Place. I have. But it's about like measuring every action you do and how it's like impossible to know every repercussion of every action you take. I think if we all made a real effort, we don't have to be perfect but we really could make a difference. Absolutely. And I think that that is, that is where we need to get to, right? Where it's not about us judging each other for, for whatever mix of decisions that you end up making, whether based on your information, you think it makes more sense to drive to both the farmer's market and the supermarket or to only the supermarket. Just get an electric <laughs> car and you got it. You have solar. Never mind. <laughs> okay, fair point. But then it also depends on where you're charging that electric car and how much of that grid is actually renewable and which time of day. So it, get, it, it gets granular and it gets kind of messy, Absolutely. I think, very, Absolutely. very quickly. And um, my point is rather, I, I think it would really behoove us to come at it from a bit more of an exploratory perspective in kind of understanding what do we enjoy about our natural world and what do we feel good about doing in relation to natural world and, and start taking small steps. I think for me that let's say the utopia or the ideal result is something akin to an environment where you don't have to make such extreme trade-offs, right? We have structured society, especially in, in the U.S., in a way that makes it very difficult to make climate-friendly decisions easily. It doesn't have to be that way. You could restructure certainly public transportation and a lot of other aspects of our daily living such that people just by living are also making environmentally friendly or climate friendly choices. People generally are used to making economic decisions. That comes more naturally and we're from a young age maybe taught to think about the economics of a decision. I've interviewed people from the Citizens Climate Lobby recently, probably three people, I think. They want to tax carbon emissions, basically. They want to, they want to tax greenhouse gases. And so that makes it an economic decision. And over time, if people act economically responsible, they will then, by default, act responsible from a climate perspective. I think, I mean, I think that's a fair perspective. I still personally have the question, what do you do with all the taxes then? They actually want to distribute it to people fairly equally. Oh, okay. That's how they want okay, to do it. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah. So that it's that a somewhat sense. progressive tax. Sure, that makes sense. I think even even though, even if you put a tax on greenhouse gas emissions, I think it doesn't necessarily solve the structural problems. Maybe the idea is that it leads to solutions of the structural problems. Correct, correct. It makes it less expensive to produce less carbon, and over time... I think the penalty grows significantly so that you have time to plan for using less carbon if you're a business, for example. Sure. But if you're an individual, let's say, and you've got to get to a meeting and you happen to live in a place that doesn't have accessible public transportation and the the cost of paying for the carbon credit offset or the carbon tax is less than buying, you know, an expensive electric vehicle, then you may still not make choices that are environmentally friendly compared to 
you know, some of the places in Europe where public transportation is ubiquitous, very efficient, very reliable, then it makes that decision super easy. Or New York. I think New York is another place. I mean, how many people drive their car on a regular basis in New York City? Very few, because the public transportation system is amazing. It's too late for LA, right, to, to plan like New York plan. I mean, New York was a very well-planned city, and, and LA is not. But there are structural things that, that make those choices a lot easier. Do you have any questions for me? Um, what's your vision for the future? Oh, that really depends on who I last interviewed. So because I interviewed you, now I'm going to dream tonight about a weather event every day. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so thank you very much for that. I do think that we're in deep trouble. I think that although we have the ingredients for a solution in place, what we really need to solve the problem is leadership, and it's a crazy kind of leadership because it's a world cooperation type of leadership, and I don't think that's ever been done, and I don't know how possible it is. Companies have a hard time organizing for success. Countries certainly have a hard time organizing for, for success. I don't know how you get the world to do it. We've never had a world problem before like this, and I don't know how you solve it. I don't know how you get on the same page. Yeah, it's a difficult question. Although we do have, let's say, like going along that carbon tax, let's say carbon credit trajectory, we do have experience and success in, in creating exchanges for, for different monies. And so there's no reason why we couldn't get to that point, right, where we're basically credits or taxes are somehow reconciled across different jurisdictions through through an exchange uh, type program where you true up the differing values. The bill that Citizens Climate Lobby has, actually, I'm no expert, okay? I just want to say I'm not an expert, but it does put a tax on imports based on how much the country you're importing it from is mitigating climate change. So it tries to factor that in, just like you're saying. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that in particular, you know, that we have to be very careful about, again, how we prescribe things like 100% renewable. Because if that means, let's say, the installation of broad sweeping solar panels and batteries, and I think they're both great technologies and they have their place in, in the mix and provide a very positive contribution. But you also have to look at the entire life cycle of those technologies. And it is a little bit, I think, intellectually lazy to say because this battery is being charged in my state by 100% solar, then it's like perfectly great for the planet where it may have been created in a very high coal grid and then transported across the ocean. So like I said, I, I don't, I, I think these arguments obviously can also be used against kind of any sort of effort. So I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be making these advances, but I think we also have to, to be honest with ourselves and, and try and look at the whole picture as much as possible. It's what I meant when I said all the arrows in all the quivers, because you need to fix transportation so that if you are shipping that battery, you're shipping it in a clean way. And if you are building items in other places, that they're being built on renewable energy as well. So you really need many efforts simultaneously. You can't just say we're doing these few things and that's enough. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of all hands on deck sort of scenario. All the decks. Yes, all the decks, <laughs> but hopefully not the Titanic deck. Yeah. Now you're going to make me dream of that tonight. 
Okay, I'm going to wrap this up, and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. It was a novel approach you decided to take to make it accessible and remove the headache. The CO2 in the atmosphere, it is a carbon curse, so you wanted to do something to keep it from getting worse. Before clear communication was the fashion, communicating climate change was your passion. Third and fourth graders are who you did it for, You went to Nicaragua for the Peace Corps. It was most frustrating. There was no appeal when we weren't able to get the Copenhagen deal. The smell on the airplane, it didn't cause permanent harm, but never again will you work at a pig farm. (laughs) I enjoyed reading your Scientific American essay and look forward to your novel with a client change weather event every day. Excellent. Very well done. Hey, thank you very much. Thank you, Lee. Julie's difficulty explaining to family and friends what she did for a living made her realize that the complexity of the science was one of the reasons people didn't understand and even denied the realities of climate change. To make it more accessible, Julie was inspired to communicate by writing a novel that is founded in science but not overburdened by science. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at www.crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Julie works in the energy industry by day, but on weekends and evenings focuses on making a difference in the world by being an author leveraging all communication mediums to make the impact of greenhouse gas more accessible is critical to mitigating climate change.